Welcome to The Generalist, a podcast of Canadian occupational therapy perspectives. I'm your host, Jen Talbanze. This is the first episode of 2020, and I want to know what you want to hear this year. Connect with me at thegeneralistpodcast at gmail.com. Our guest today is Moira Pena. She's an experienced OT who's dedicated her career to working with individuals across the lifespan who experience sensory processing, behavioral, and emotional challenges. She has training credentials from Star Center in Denver and is working at Holland Warview Kids Rehab Hospital in Toronto. She's also a lecturer in the Department of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy at the University of Toronto. Moira joins me today to share her experience and thoughts on creating and presenting a CAOT conference, reframing OT as lifestyle interventions, then a quick look at sensory processing. Moira shares how a change in autism diagnosis is leading to more funding for sensory processing research and more medical professionals turning to OTs for guidance on intervention. So we met at a conference that you were presenting at. You know, this was my first time presenting a two-day course. I have presented before. I've been doing it for a couple of years where I've been asked to present in different topics. And really the most that I've done is probably a three-hour workshop before this conference. And it was interesting to me as I prepare for the conference, and I spent my whole summer preparing for that conference, just how anxious I I became or how nervous I became because I knew I was going to be presenting to OTs, to my peers, and not to other health professionals. So I have, as part of my job at uh, Holland Bloorview Kids Rehabilitation Hospital, I get to be part of a team that teaches pediatricians about autism spectrum disorder and the idea is that we are hoping to build capacity in the community so that pediatricians are able to diagnose autism and to also manage the symptoms that need to be managed and part of that group for about a year and we meet through zoom we can all see each other and we present on different topics and then we have case discussions That has been a a really fascinating part of my job for the last year because I'm working with an interdisciplinary team, but really realizing that pediatricians, you know, they know a lot about medications, but really appreciate knowing a little bit more about uh, lifestyle interventions, which is what we are experts at. So it's been a very welcoming environment for me. And Through that, I've been doing a lot more. I've been asked to present on different topics uh, in pediatrics. And I love, love, love presenting to parents. That was always uh, my first love. And that's why I've always said yes. It, It was always about the families and the parents. And then this opportunity came along from CAOT to present to the conferences across the country. Uh, because they have added more now so I am going from that's really exciting so I you know I went to Vancouver where I met you and I'll be going to Edmonton I'll be going to Halifax Ontario and Quebec so super exciting but anyway if um, you guys spoiler alert go 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 amazing resources all evidence-based great fun super like 
connection and collaboration within the, the room. You do a phenomenal job as presenting so and, and with the information you. you share. I'm telling you, BCOTs will always be my first love because what you saw in that room is that there were OTs who were just out of school, uh, some of them 10 years in, but there were a lot who were there with like 30 years experience. Yeah. I, I was so impressed. And, and what you saw at that conference, I think, is what I always tried to get at. And I, I, I believe that, you know, it is nerve-wracking to be speaking in front of people, but I, be, I believe it's also a privilege. And that it's not about me. It's about people wanting to learn and, and wanting to grow. And that's how I try to look at it, that nobody is sort of evaluating me or, or judging me. And, and it really has nothing to do with me as a speaker, but it's about building this capacity in the audience. And, and almost, I think what I, what I aim for is, you know, you see it, uh, I call it the turning point where people sort of realize that they know so much already. Mm-hmm. And that, um, and and you know that they already have these skills, and that all I'm doing is just confirming, yes, you can do this, and yes, of course we've done this, so we can try this and we can try that. So I think, I think that's um, of so much value, and I love doing it with parents. This idea mm-hmm. of like coaching parents, so not so not so much, you know, teaching or expert teaching, but it's really this idea of like you know this is where you're at. Let me coach you to a different level. So, and you yeah, make it seem so natural when you do it. Like for everyone listening, she also dropped knowledge bombs everywhere and it was awesome. <laughs> and tidbits here and tips and tricks, like just off the cuff, like the most amazing little tidbit I've ever heard or the way she phrased things, you know, like, oh, that's going to land with all of these parents. I haven't been able to get that concept to land with. The way where you met the OTs, where they were at um, with their knowledge was amazing. So I'm sure what you do with parents is incredible. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a real journey for me to, to realize that, you know, I am now presenting to my peers. I, people are taking two days out of their lives, out of their work to come and listen to me. The ante was up, as they say, right? <laughs> like, I just, I just had to reflect on what my message was going to be yes I've been doing this for 20 years yes I do have a lot of knowledge but I really wanted to bring um, this message home as okay you know here's all the knowledge let's let's actually do some experiential learning like where Mm -hmm. we actually talk about cases and reflect on cases and that's why my courses I I try to keep them at 50 um and he did sell out in vancouver like, oh, within yeah. a week which was amazing i was um but it's really this idea of you know all of us uh, and me mediating um conversations and mm-hmm. and and then it's almost like as gina are standing you know it's almost that just just right challenge right like bringing mm-hmm. up like where's your knowledge going bringing that up a little bit building you up again and then trying something else you did it effortlessly, it seemed to us. I guess my next question would be, what about to other healthcare professionals? How do you figure out where they're at 
I always try to educate on occupational therapy first. So I always say, you know, um, I'm an occupational therapist, which means that I talk about occupation. So to me, that's anything that um, you need to do. So, you know, self-care, um, you're expected to do. So going to school um, and that you want to do. So the things that you might do um, in, in leisure. And I, and I think um, doctors and other healthcare professionals do understand the value of lifestyle interventions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what do we try before we try medication? So I think what we have to bring to um, other professions is super valuable. I that you're framing OT as lifestyle because that's really what it is. And it's, you know, not every intervention, you know, you're going to use it in self-care productivity and leisure using kind of that healthcare language of lifestyle because that's always the buzzword in, especially in primary care, in kids, in, well, any kind of chronic illness. So I love that you're pairing essence yeah. to what people are talking about. So I love that lifestyle. Okay. We do, we do lifestyle. Think, you know, not only, not only in clinical populations, but you know, yeah. about, you know, wellness uh, magazine, sleep, yeah. Like, yeah. you know, Instagram. <laughs> and yeah. And what we, what OTs are experts at is lifestyle interventions. Like we, yeah. you know, in the areas uh, that matter, you know, yes. I think, I think, you know, I have a theory with OTs as to sometimes I think we are our own worst enemies in mm-hmm. that we don't think that what we do is important enough. Like, and I'm doing air quotes, right? Like, yeah. and it's, and I think it's because, you know, OTs tend to be, you know, to get into school, you have to be super accomplished and, you know, they tend to be sort of this high achieving group and it's only until something happens to you when you realize oh my goodness self-care is huge so Mm -hmm. if you get into an accident if all of a sudden you're not able to use your body in the ways that you were able to do before that's when you realize and to me that happened to me when I when I became a mom you know when I had my kids and I realized wow if I don't have these kids ready by a certain time to get out the door, to drop them off at daycare, to get into work. Like I realized the importance of like routines and, and the things that I teach all the time, but until it hit me, right. that's when I knew that what I do is important and valuable. And, you know, and I almost had to do OT on myself, right? Yeah. OT yourself. <laughs> yeah. I had to OT myself. And I still do every day. Like, yeah. I mean, this is not, this is an ongoing OT myself situation here. That's how um, you're a high achieving CMT yeah. presenter. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, but I think it's really this, you know, the, the three areas that we look at are, is what, gives life meaning and we when we have the privilege of intervening in people's lives so that we bring more meaning to their life that's huge i got goosebumps full goosebumps both arms (laughs) yeah so you know sot's like let's own that and 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 bring that you know another reason why i decided 
that I would put myself out there and that I would do more of these presentations. Um, and, and I did that just by putting out a website. I mean, it's, that's when people sort of knew that I was going to do this or that I wanted to do this. But it's really this idea of advocating for our profession. And I think we are great at getting other people to advocate for themselves. We're not so great at advocating for ourselves. I see it like a very timid OT and then their client has something happen to them and they go into like mama bear OT mode and there is nothing stopping that funding. Like that person is going to get whatever they needed because she all full OT bear. You've seen Um, it, right? Yeah, but I don't see it happen for our profession as often. Like I can see that in every OT I've met. I know there's a story. Going the extra mile, finding the source of funding that nobody else knew that was happening. Really, exactly. Why is it that we're not doing it for our profession that I think is the best profession? Right. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, yeah. One piece for me that I know always like knocks me off my feet is if I'm doing, you know, self-care or I'm working on a calming routine for, you know, the family, not just for the kiddo because it's a high stress environment or something like that. And I do the awful Google search. I think pulling up some of those pop culture, health, wellness, lifestyle blog posts and all those kind of things can be really hard to be like, well, is my advice any better than that? Am I being replaced by this blog? Or am I being like, this is just common sense. Our job is so meaningful that we see it in mainstream culture. I think that's one. But I think Mm. the value that we bring as OTs, remember, is your therapeutic use of self, right? So, So it's not per se, yeah, sure, you know, we can give a lot of information, right? We can give a lot of knowledge. Um, but the value, we are therapists, we are, you know, trained therapists. And, and, it's, and remember what I said at, at the course, you know, um, we have evidence to say that 24% of being effective in therapy is just the therapeutic alliance. It's the way that you connect with your client. And not anybody can do that, you know, yeah. to, to be able to be self-aware as we need to be one more therapist and, and empathize with the client, the, whoever that may be, the kid, the family, um, the parents, um, to be able to, to make them feel that they are competent. That's a mm-hmm. skill. So it's, it, it's a, you know, it's, it's own disability and that's where our value comes in. Yes, 100%. I'm just going to replay this little section whenever I fall down the, the Instagram <laughs> yes. hole of, oh my God, why don't we just Google no, it? I'll get better. Everything things. is out there, right? Like you can Google everything. I mean, you That's can thing. Google everything. And now, you know, I do the, the you know, I do the same thing. Like when I, I, I will do, I will listen to TED Talks and I'm going to go, okay, why would anyone want to listen to me, (laughs) you know, when they can go? But I mean, we all do it, right? Everything is out there. The question is, what is it that through your own use of Mm -hmm. self, what is it that you can bring to that relationship? It's more than curating what's out there. It's how do you present it? It's how do you connect? And how do you help other people learn and do it? It's all connection. It's all connection and not everybody can do that. Right. Totally. Yeah. 
Awesome. Any last minute thoughts on your journey to presenting and sharing the world of OT? I think what I wanted people to know, OTs to know, is I was one of those students who struggled in school in terms of, you know, do I really want to do this? I had a really hard time sort of getting through, you know, some of the things we had to get through, like the theory of OT. And, and, and I was like, no, I just want to get to the interventions. Like, what am I doing out here? And, and yeah. so, you know, I meet, I, I do lecture at the University of Toronto now, and I meet OTs now, uh, OT students who also struggle. And I, and I always want to give that message that I'm out 20 years now from school. I did go back to do my master's a couple of years ago, but I have been working for 20 years. I want OT or new OTs to know that there is a world of different jobs that you can do in OT until, until you find your path. You know, if you're doing something right now that's not really, um, you know, that is not a good fit. And if you can, you know, take that leap and, you know, move on to something else. You know, I just wanted to work with girls who had eating disorders. That's why I went to school. I had no interest in pediatrics. I wanted to work with adults. Um, I wanted to be in mental health. I actually moved to England to work in that field because I could not find a job in that field in Toronto. So I I went to London, England to to work in an inpatient eating disorders unit. And, you know, and I did that for two years and loved it. But then I came back to Canada. I couldn't find a job in it. You know, I've been a case manager. I also work for Veteran Affairs Canada. I prescribe wheelchairs. I've worked in geriatrics. I've done a lot. I, I think the only field I haven't touched is probably insurance. But everything else, I've tried everything until I found okay, this is really what I want to do, which is pediatrics and which is working with kids who have sensory processing issues, kids and youth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it took me a while and it's a journey. And I, and I think that's, it's not a bad thing. You know, you get yeah. to try different things. You get to learn from every job that you do and take it to your next job. And then hopefully then you just find your niche. Yeah. The common thread is that you're learning about occupation and how to enable it, right? In each one of those settings. So when you go into kids or into, I call it families, because I think I do as much parent coaching as I do anything with, you know, the little ones. I find having a bigger background, like staying true to being a generalist really gives you that leg up when the parent is dealing with this weird occupational issue because you've seen it somewhere else or this kid is into something obscure, but you know how to break down a similar task yes. because you've seen more occupations and seen them done in different ways. Yeah. And I think we really have to make sure that we don't lose sight of what our goal is, which is occupational performance, right? We want people to really gain skills and feel competent in self-care, productivity, and leisure. And yes, you can use different different modalities for that, different interventions. So for me, you know, my love is sensory processing. So of course, that's going to be my lens. But it doesn't mean that everything is sensory. You know, I'm also using physical health, biomechanical theories, all, you know, mental health, and I'm bringing it all together. But mm-hmm. I think my, we just always have to remember that our, our goal is to support occupational performance. Um, and then that way, 
by being a generalist and always aiming for those three, you know, self-care, productivity, and leisure, then I think we can really build families up. Yeah. And I think you do that so beautifully in your course, because I know sometimes I go to courses and I'm learning about a very small modality or a very small, like little section of what we do very extensively. And I'm like, oh yeah, this is the lens I want to use. And I'm down this rabbit hole. But as soon as I like forgot about occupation at all, you came in and were like, but we don't even, that doesn't even matter because that might not even happen. Like we, how does this relate to getting dressed in the morning? And you did such a beautiful job of always bringing us back as soon as you started to take that turn a little bit down the rabbit hole of, oh, this is like, I want to know everything about neuropsychology. Oh, I want to know all these paths. And what, what were those spine, the cranial nerves again? And how, which ones go with which one? And then you're like, oh no, occupation, occupation. Yes. Occupation. All beautiful things to know and to integrate into your interventions or your assessments. But yeah. What we care about is occupation. <laughs> That's what we're experts yeah. at. We're not experts at cognitive behavioral therapy or, you know, every, whatever else. Yeah. Like we need to, you know, we're using our, our lifestyle interventions, our occupational focus to get to um, occupation at the end. So for sure. Yeah. Love it. And having more tools in our tool belt, tool belt like CBT or, you know, yeah, having yeah, a really that's all great, right? of it. it's helpful. It's great, but it's yeah. tools. Yeah. We are occupational therapists. Love it. I love it. Hey, generalists. If you want more OT conversations, check out otpodcasts.com for a listing of occupational therapy podcasts from around the world. That's otpodcasts.com. We talked a lot about advocating for OT, how that can be uncomfortable. How do you grow in discomfort? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, when I decided to start doing more uh, talks and conferences, I think this is a skill that we as OTs need to be, need to learn. And as uncomfortable as it is, we just to put yourself out there and to learn to advocate for our profession because it is still a lot of people, you know, are within our own teams, they still do not know the full scope of practice that we can be practicing mm-hmm. at, right? Even though we think they should or we think, well, how can they not? But I, I realized that unless we really show what it is that we do and, and we educate ongoing that people need to hear it um, uh, for them to then realize how to best access your services and, and all the great things that we can do. Right. Yeah. And so that is something that I'm trying to learn to do is trying to be comfortable or trying to just expect discomfort when I put myself in situations, when, I, when I'm advocating for OT or when I'm, when I'm speaking to a, a group of people and that it is through this, this discomfort. And, and the reason why I, I may be uncomfortable at the time is also because it's meaningful to me, right? Yes. And, and, and realizing that because it's valuable and meaningful to me, well, maybe that's why it is uncomfortable. And so that's, that's sort of my, my goal with all of this, sort of trying to, you know, really teach about what it is that we do, really bring OT, um, like more general knowledge of what OT is, mm-hmm. and for me to grow as a person, to do things that even though they may be scary, to still do them, to still commit to the action of going through whatever that fear may be. 
because right. at the end it is valuable for me. Yeah. I just did my first big education lunch and learn. And I know I had the same feelings and it was like, I was nervous, but being able to reshape it as you're excited because this is something meaningful is similar mantra I had going on. And just knowing that this is what you do with people every day, just because they're people in, you know, suits and ties or they're people who also do something in the same world as you doesn't mean they don't want to know the stuff that everyone else wants to know. Absolutely. It's just about Good for you. It's hard, right? Yeah. Like it is hard. And I always want to try and explain what OT is. And I've been finding using the PEO model and then okay. highlighting how in Canada we are widely regarded as really, really strong OTs because we have, and I attribute it to us having spirit in our model and having the core of a person, how that is in you know our Canadian model. And I found that's a good way to kind of explain OT in a way that people say, oh, that's why they can look at all these different things. Okay. Do you have a go-to model or way you explain what OT is? I think if the conversation is long enough, then yes, I, I definitely have, like you said, that, that CMOP, right? The Canadian uh, model of occupational performance where mm-hmm. um, you have the person in, you know, a holistic view of the person is that what we're getting at. Everything that I do, I try to bring to a common understanding. So what I, I always say is, you know, is whatever occupies your time, so when I talk about occupation, it's what occupies your time, but it's what occupies your time in a, meaning, in a meaningful way. Right. So whatever that may be that is meaningful to you, that's what your occupational therapist is going to be looking at. I always try to bring the word meaning because we, we can all be doing lots of things we, you know, that we just have to have to get through, but what is it that brings you meaning and how can I as an in that. I think that's what I always try to to convey. I love that. You're trying to convey meaning and this connection and that's what OT is. How do you do it when you're feeling extremely uncomfortable? You know, I, I learned to be authentic. I'm from Latin America. I'm from Argentina. I think, you know, uh, culturally we are... Um, we're an open book. Like I really think it is um, a North American trait to be a lot more conservative about your feelings. And, and, and so I, I mean, I've been here for a long time, so I, I've learned to put a persona on, I think, but I think now as I get older, I just realize you know, I just gotta be myself and say what I have to say and be open to conversations that it is really in me being as honest uh, as I can be when I can connect to people. So even when I'm working with families, what I share with a lot of the families that I work with, you know, people know that I'm a mom, I have two kids. Um, people know that parenting is not easy for me. I have two wonderful boys, but who are very active. And, and so I try to really find some sort of common ground mm-hmm. with my families. And I, and I think when we talk about professional boundaries, I think we've almost taken it too far. I think it's, you know, I'm not sharing anything personal in my life that could be perceived as inappropriate or anything like that. But I think as we are just, we're human beings, you know, we need to be able to, to empathize. And sometimes, you know, sometimes I do not know the answer to, you know, people will come and say, you know, 
like I need this solved. And I will just say, you know, I, I do not know what to do. I'm sorry, I cannot help you, but I can support you. Yeah. It's just by being there and, and, um, and, and sort of trying to really connect with the families that I work with uh, when I may not have the answer. Um, and, and I think that's valuable too, right? Like, in, mm-hmm. you know, in spite of, you know, your child's, um, that he's still behaving in this way, or even though we tried all these things, you know, um, this, this challenging behavior is still happening. So in spite of all that, how can I support you so that, that you are able to manage the situation? in a better way. So I think also as OTs, we get really discouraged if our interventions don't, don't work right away or if we don't see progress right away. Right, know, yeah. We, we're like, oh no, it's not working. You know, this doesn't work. And we, and we sort of, you know, very quickly try to change it. And, and I think we need to really step back from that and say, you know, we are complex human beings. Um, all of us are. and some of these interventions that we are hoping that our um, clients and our families take on, um, they take time. Sometimes you fail at them. Sometimes, you know, if you're doing a sensory diet or a sensory lifestyle, well, you know, today is not the day and, and, and that's okay. That's just, mm-hmm. that's just humanity. And, and as as OTs understanding that, you know, our interventions are not like, oh yes, put it in and it's going to work right away. It's, mm-hmm. it's a process. It's a yeah. process. It's a lifestyle. Um, it takes time. It's a lifestyle. Yeah, it's it's a process. You know, anything that you take up uh, that's new, it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard. It's hard for me. If it was easy, you would have done it already. Exactly. It worked already. Exactly. Yeah. And, and being comfortable with that, you know, being comfortable. Well, you know, um, it may not work right away. Uh, but then perhaps, you know, the next day they're a little bit more motivated to try something that you may have said. Um, and, and so that's what I think we need to be more comfortable with seeing our therapeutic, what it is, it's a process, small steps, two steps, two steps forward, one step back. And that's Um, why it's so meaningful. If it was a quick fix, you would do it. You might tell two people and that's it. But those aren't big problems that people are coming to OTs for. You had a great line at the conference about if a piece of intervention doesn't go well, it's part of the assessment. How did you phrase that? So I said, you know, that, you know, if it works, it's therapy. If it doesn't work, it's assessment. I mean, (laughs) everything that we do just in life, tried it, it didn't work. Well, try something else, try something else. And do not get discouraged if it doesn't work right away. Okay, we tried this, you know, and with the family that you're working with, you know, as partners um, in therapy, say, look, we did this, we tried this together. Where do you think you could go? You know, what what else could we try? What would fit with your life right now? Mm-hmm. As opposed to us just, you know, coming down with a list of, you know, 20 things or, or 30 recommendations and, and just overwhelming families, you know, really getting to the level of, you know, where would you like to go? What, mm-hmm. what, what would be valuable for you? How will you know that I've helped you? And that may be very different for that 
parent or that family than what you think you're bringing to the picture. Right? How will you so, know that I've helped you? Ooh, yeah. powerful. That's like, powerful. that's good. Yeah. And then, and then, you know, very often what happens when you ask that, that question is people are silent because mm-hmm. they have to think about it. Oh, I thought, I thought I was coming here for you to give me all the answers, right? Mm-hmm. And so we need to be comfortable with that silence and then listen to what comes, you know, because very often it is not what I expected or what the referral said or, you know, mm-hmm. it's when people really think about, you know, how will you know in an hour when we're done our appointment that I have helped you or that this has been valuable, not even that I've helped you, that this has been valuable for you. Yeah. And then listening to that answer and then building a plan together to make sure that your time together has been valuable. Yeah. Beautiful coaching model right there. Yeah. That's your next course. (laughs) It's called solution-focused um, communication, and mm-hmm. it is something that um, we are doing at, um, at the rehab center that I work at. And you know, I I am super proud and and um, grateful um, to work where I work because they are quite innovative in things like this. And so, um, you know, we're taught these principles, and then we are being encouraged to try them in our sessions. Mm-hmm. And 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 it's not easy. You know, we want to be the experts. I mean, that's what we've been trained to do is, but right now we know from the evidence that, you know, parent coaching mm-hmm. is as powerful sometimes as just as therapy, you know, therapy intervention, you know, it's, it's and love this is like building the parent giving them skills, making them more competent for them mm-hmm. to then be able to have a more meaningful, connected relationship with their child. And, and that's why coaching is so important for mm-hmm. us as OTs and that we need to learn these principles that come from the mental health field. Yeah. Um, that, you know, we need to learn these principles and use them. And, you know, it's all health. It's mental health, physical health together. Um, and that's why I think I am, I so love uh, sensory processing because, you know, your sensory systems not only help you uh, move, um, they code with your emotional brain to help you feel. Yeah. So it, it's, it's the bridge between physical and mental health, right? So it's this idea of using, our, you know, how do we support our sensory processing in a way that helps us function to, our, uh, you know, to the best of our abilities? That's what I love about using that lens in my practice. Sensory is not just for kids. Why do we need to think about it for everybody? Yeah. Um, you know, I think, yeah, sensation is everything that we, the way we experience the world is through sensations, right? When my sensory systems are not working as well as they could together. So for example, I like to give the example of, you know, when I'm driving, there comes a time when I'm actually merging onto a highway. I, I don't like driving. I'm quite anxious when I drive. Merge into a highway. I need to bring down the music because I can only do one thing. I, I, I can't listen to music and merge at the same time. Or, or I, you know, I think about 
people who tell me who have chronic pain and they find lights to be quite painful, right? So they need to have dim light. I recently, well, I have a friend who's undergoing cancer and she says to me, you know, when the kids at home, when, when they're yelling, like I can actually Mm. feel my, my stomach like flipping over, you know, her sensory systems have gone to a level where she has such a perception of her, um, what we call interoception, right? The, the, the sense of your, your organs. And I thought, gosh, that's so interesting, right? Like we, we lose sight of that, uh, of just how everything affects us, even to, um, you know, how, how your, what you may be experiencing in terms of your emotional life also affects you internally. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, when I was pregnant, like I really, I actually really wanted to get that, you know, when people talk about that, you can smell things and they make you nauseous right away. Yeah. Um, and then you, you vomit and you, and I said, you know, I really want to feel that. And I didn't, <laughs> but I wanted to feel it. Cause then I'm like, that's what, that's what people feel like mm-hmm. when they have a sensory processing dysfunction or difference or disorder that affects you to that extent, right? That, mm-hmm. that affects your, your life. And I'm like, oh goodness, you know, this is what the children and the youth and whoever I'm working with, this is what they're feeling 24 seven, mm-hmm. right? Then I realized just how important it is that as therapists, we are empathetic to the lived experience, to what people are telling us, because that is how they experience the world. I may not experience that, right? But that's how their sensory systems are are functioning at this time and and that we need to honor that, Mm -hmm. um, honor that and and go from there um, when you're planning your interventions. Yeah. When you're explaining sensory to parents or you're explaining this to people who might not be as interested or might not know much about it. What's a common way that you will start talking about it that parents can relate to? Yeah, to yeah. I, I think I always try to find a, a moment when that person's sensory systems wasn't at its best. And then, oh yeah, you know, or, or I do things like going shopping on the 24th at Christmas, right? Mm. Like going to the mall and oh my goodness, you can't find parking and you know, you go into the mall and, and you're just, your sensory systems are off and um and just how angry people get <laughs> like when you go right? when, you know what I mean? yeah. but it's like your sensory inputs like the feeling that sense of being bombarded right mm. like that and how that affects your emotional you know outburst or like you know no one's yeah. happy on the 24th you know when you're doing last minute shopping so i really try to make it an example in real life that people can connect to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then my goal with the families to help them reframe their child's behavior as right. not something that is willful, but it, that it's something that is beyond that, that it's a, you know, it's, it's a sensory processing issue or it could be a communication issue, but that behaviors are really trying to tell us something. And it's not just something that we willfully do um, mm-hmm. just to upset our parents, you know? Yeah. I think reframing behaviors. And then once parents recognize, oh, yes, like I've done this or, or yes, I know how that feels, then they are able to look at their child in a much different and 
more supportive and it changes everything. And even as a parent, once I can reframe a behavior, it changes the way I am going to choose to address it. Yeah. And you can only reframe with coaching. Like I've never been able to educate someone to a point where they can reframe, but it's that coaching through that relationship that gets that extra mile. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite ways I found recently, I've been working with quite a few families that have more of a high-end corporate background and talking about how, you know, once you're higher up in a level, there's always like business development and management development courses and those sorts of things where they talk about, okay, how are you most effective and how do you learn the best and what type of learner are you and all of those pieces. And I love to relate that back to sensory. We're trying to figure out how your kid is the most effective. How are they, right? So it's the same tools, this learning or this exposure to this idea. And I found that's a really fun way and a really strength-based way. Because sometimes when I'm explaining with parents, this is why they're blowing up, they kind of feel helpless. And they're like, I can, I can see it, but, but now what? And I get yeah. this, but does this mean this is what it's going to be forever? And I love using that framework to come back in, like kind of the back door. So we drop this, there's a reframe, we let the dust settle, and then come in and then it's like, you have a unique standing where you're at. The way you learn is different than everybody else. And that's what's going to set you apart from everyone else too. So how do we make that thrive? How do we make that work for your kid so they can be exceptional? They can be completely unique and authentic. I love it. Yeah. And, and, and I think what, what you've just explained is, is getting the families or the parents buy-in, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're buying, okay, I, and, like, and through their own experience, something that they can relate to. So the courses that they're doing or their own personal development to yeah. then bring it to their own life. And then they're like, aha, okay, I get it now. And once you have this common beginning, that's where you can start to build. But yeah, that's, that's excellent. That's exactly the way that I do it too, is how do I get this family to buy in, into, um, and it, so it doesn't become this like, you know, esoteric like concept that mm-hmm. they keep, like, how is it that it's affecting them in their regular day life? Because we're all sensory beings, right? To then be able to bring that lens onto their, their child, mm-hmm. child's behavior. Yeah, totally. You make sensory considerations feel so natural and expected. I'm grateful you're sharing your passion and expertise with OTs across Canada. How did you know that presenting was the right step for you? One of the reasons why I was very motivated to bring this course to Canadian OTs, because there was this idea that, you know, there's not enough research on sensory processing or on AR sensory integration. That's always been my love. I did my master's in in this topic, so I know that there is research. I think what happens with OTs is that we are on the ground doing the work and we just we don't have the time to either get involved in research or to start to read all the stuff that comes out all the time to update our research base and i think there's also a ton of uh, gray literature right so a lot of ot Mm. students who who have done a great project and then somehow that's where it stops and they don't bring it to trying to publish it. And so there's a lot of work that we do that kind of, it gets lost, right? Because if, yeah. 
So, and I, and I understand why that is. Again, we, we want to be doing things. And I've learned of the value of research. Once sensory processing differences became a part of the diagnostic criteria for autism, um, and this happened in 2013 with the, the new DSM-5. So the Which diagnostic- I don't think everybody knows about. <laughs> Like right. that is a huge deal. People said, well, now sensory processing disorder isn't a thing. No, it's in autism. Like it is approved by the doctors. This is a stamp of approval. This is a stamp from the research teams that develop yeah. it. Sensory hyper uh, responsivity and sensory hyper responsivity. So overreacting and underreacting to sensations. That is a diagnostic criteria, like a diagnostic criterion. When that happened, all of the sudden, the research world blew up because mm-hmm. all of a sudden there were funds and people were interested. Like, well, what are we talking? Like, what is what are OTs? What have OTs been talking about for fifty years? You know, in, in terms of sensory, because here it is. It's part of the diagnostic criteria, and so a ton of research then started, which is what I teach you at the course. All the different um, research uh, studies that have gone on and are going on. Super exciting things. But that's when I realized the importance of research. You know, back in twenty thirteen, I just saw I was like oh okay I as much as it may not be what drives me I see why it needs to be done and so what happened was I just became vocal and I started saying hey I want to do more of this and whoever would actually listen to me I guess it came to a point when the doctors that I worked with were like oh Moira you mentioned you wanted to do research research I'm doing, you know, I want to do this research. Would you like to be part of it? And also, again, I, I, I am very lucky to work at Holland Blue Review because we do have, again, a, a culture of research informing our interventions. And so, for example, at, at Blue Review, we do have the Autism Research Center. So a ton of research goes on. I work with an amazing team. And because I'm constantly around them, you know, I get to give them ideas and then I get to um, actually be part of the research. And I've done a few, but the one that I'm working on right now is, is called Leap, which is a learning to eat app. And it's for kids uh, with autism. Kids with autism, they're five times more likely to have issues around their, their feeding mm-hmm. in terms of the sensory qualities of the food. So managing different textures, managing, adding new foods to their repertoire. It's very challenging for kids on the spectrum. I became part of a group. So we have a developmental pediatrician, a behavioral, a BCBA, so a board certified behavioral therapist, a speech and language pathologist, another occupational therapist, and myself. And we together it came up um, with this app and it was super fun because we had technical people, right? So mm. people who were coding the, and were listening to us to actually build, his, his name is Nibbles. So he is our guy who is trying different foods through, through the different sensory systems. Nibbles is actually working with the toddler on the other side of the iPad, of, you know, trying to help that toddler go through the different sensory experiences of food. Amazing. Um, so that's been super fun. That's been super fun. You have fun. any spoilers for yeah. us? When does Nibbles come to the oh, general yeah, population? Um, we're still in the pilot studies okay. of like, trying it with kids. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I think, so once that's done and all that's collected, uh, then eventually I think the idea is that we will bring it to the general public to use. Yeah, that was, that was one. And then of course, um, doing research through, I, I, I went back to doing a master's of OT and again, you know, 20 years later, like that was super exciting for me. I, I really, I really love OT and I wanted to get more into the research. And so my research project was on sensory processing and sensory based interventions and did it through the university of Manitoba. And I love their faculty. I mean, kudos to them. They were such an inspiring group of professors I got that research done uh, with my with my colleague Yvonne Ning, and that's what I'm trying to publish now. I mean, this was a couple of years ago, and I'm still trying to publish that paper. And it is I realize how you know because revisions come back, and then you have to change it again. Mm-hmm. So it's not easy by any means. I think choosing to be a researcher is a super challenging path but I love the fact that as clinicians like I'm always going to be a clinician just having little or big opportunities where you can actually do the research that drives you and then step back into clinical but and then get that research to actually guide your interventions as well so it was so concrete like you're getting an app out of it you can see result of it. I think sometimes when I think of research, I think of, you know, academia way up here. It's not on the ground. It's not going to help my families or it's not going to help. Like it might down the line or in five years when research builds on research, what's the result? More research is needed, right? Like I forgot to mention that in every research project at Blueview, we have parent advisors. So parents are in that group and more and more, you know, research is now about having self-advocates so autistic people in the team and and parents to really guide us because we want research to be valuable to families and so all that's changing for sure Mm -hmm. it's a new way of seeing research um blue review we have there you know there's actual like questions that parents want answered and we try to drive our research towards those questions so yeah it's it's very different now and i think Mm -hmm. worth worth you know connecting to with like um a professor or get involved in research in in whatever way you can you know and whatever little time you may have or lots of time you may have and to and just so the first step is just to reach out to anyone and everyone around you and say hey i'm thinking about research i don't really know the next step very often you will see from from centers whatever center that may be close to you and just okay. seeing okay what kind of research are they doing calling that up and say hey i would love to become involved i, I have you know we have volunteers that come in and my advice would be to do in, in an area that you love and that you want to learn more about and that's just going to take you places it's very interesting right now because of the parent involvement as well yeah it sounds like there are some OTs on those boards figuring out how these are going to work now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Again, all the people who matter in the room. That's pretty, sounds like an OT. <laughs> OT thought. One of the things that I've realized, how important social media and like podcasts like yours, right? Like as a professional development tool, mm-hmm. uh, like I had no idea. And I started listening to all these podcasts, OT podcasts. Like there are some really good ones, including yours. Um, and you really learn, um, you learn so much. And, and so I realized, wow, this is a whole new way. Cause I, I, 
I got onto Twitter like a, a year ago and I love Twitter for um, our profession because that's where all the medical professionals are at. I think it's a great way to advocate for our profession and a great way to um, follow um, the researchers or, or the people that you want to learn, learn more about. Most of them are on Twitter now. So that was fascinating to me when that whole world sort of exploded mm -hmm. to me because I had, again, I, hadn't, I, I thought Twitter was about politics. <laughs> like I had no idea until I went to CAOT 2018 oh, and okay. I saw that people were tweeting and I'm like, Oh, what's this about right and then I got onto it and now the amazing thing and as I'm sure you have with your podcast is connecting with all of these OTs all over the world um, mm. right and it's a smaller uh, world than I think you realize yeah. and yeah it's been cool it's been really really cool just connecting so and you're on Instagram do you want to share your handles with everyone <laughs> um well, definitely Twitter. So I'm at Moira Pena uh, OT on Twitter, and I've I've recently got onto Instagram, and I'm I'm not quite sure exactly what I'm doing with that account. I I do follow. There are lots of OTs who actually they have amazing content that I actually use um, with my clients, in particular um, around feeding. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some amazing dietitians and OTs and who, who have lots of great visuals that I can use to teach my families in terms of gradual exposure to new foods. And there's a, an amazing pediatric OTs there as well, or, or really in any field that you may be. But my, um, I think my account is really around connecting mm -hmm. with OTs. You know, I, I want to have a way to capture all of the OTs that I meet as I, as I am doing these conferences um, throughout Canada. How do we as, as OTs connect together? And, and whatever else that I may find, I mean, that I find interesting that I may have read in a, in a research, in, in the literature, I may also put that up. So yeah, so, so my account is not so much about OT or sensory processing content, but it's more about connections mm -hmm. amongst us. Yeah. I think you spend a lot of time prepping materials and it's like, this should be out there and it's hard to find. So social media might be a great way to find those pieces that we're like, oh, I, I know this exists. I just can't find it. Yeah, you do. Yeah. I think social media is very valuable for OTs now for your own development as a professional. Yeah. Which is so funny because five years ago, even, or three years, well, I don't even know when I was in school, but a while, <laughs> like not, not long ago, is that professional? Like, what does this professional word mean? And I think sometimes it's hard to shake that. Yeah. Going on Twitter, that's going to help you out professionally, or that's a good way to network. It's not LinkedIn, you know, like these kind of ideas where LinkedIn was the safe one you're allowed to do business stuff on. But now that <laughs> business stuff is coming into the Facebook world and clinics are on Facebook and like, you know, you have parent groups that are meeting up on Facebook, like, or on any other meetup site. I mean, it's Instagram or Twitter creating these followings. That's an asset. That's a resource you should be tapping into. But I think it's hard sometimes to make that shift. And how do you keep your professional boundaries or how do you create, you know, guidelines for yourself that, you know, this is business do you have different accounts and just different obstacles I think that we need to navigate together. But if you have that community on Twitter, you can pose those questions to people who are using it, who understand, who probably went through the same hurdles of saying, Ooh, is this professional sharing or is this like too controversial? Where do we draw the line? Is this gonna, you know, we don't want 
to say something that's going to get blown up out of proportion, right? So I think there's a lot of learning, but we can only do it by, we only learn by doing a little OT. <laughs> yeah. Coming up, my OT showing. <laughs> Just try it. <laughs> Just try to see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Are you ready for some rapid fire questions? Yeah. What guides your practice? Connection. Connection. Yeah, for sure. Like I, the most valuable part of um, my session is when I feel, when I can see that the person is connecting with me as a person, not so much through what I may be saying, but that they know I am there to support them. Beautiful. How do you describe OT? Anything that's meaningful to you that occupies your time. And it could be something that you need to do, like your self-care, something that you have to do, like go to school um, or work, and uh, something that you want to do. So the ways, your hobbies and your leisure and the ways that you find value in other activities. What advice would you give yourself when you were making a career move? I think just to trust the process that we're not going to have all of the answers and that maybe a job is not all perfect and it shouldn't be that there, there should always be challenges within it is like so that you, you can grow as a person and I think I would have said to the you know to that OT who graduated 20 years ago and didn't really know if she wanted to be an OT is you'll find your path this is a great profession it gives you the um, advantage of being able to work with different populations and you will find your niche and you will find your path. And just to be a bit more patient in that discovery. How do you take care of you? I am a sensory seeker and <laughs> I find I actually teach step classes. I only teach once a week. That's all the time that I have, but I just love the fact that for that one hour, I'm in flow because, you know, the choreography that I have to teach is quite uh, challenging and I have to keep a beat with the music. So I need to be present in that time. So that's what I love about it. Yeah. I, I just love doing that. That's awesome. What about this work fills your bucket? Oh, so much. I think what gives me a sense of, again, a flow or, or when I think that I've done my best in using myself as a therapist. And I think it is such a privilege, as I said before, for that we are therapists, that we are in, this, in people's lives. What fills my bucket is when I see that through a connection that I made or through uh, perhaps some coaching or, or a communication, I see a parent sitting up straighter. I see a parent gain and, and I can see it. You can visually see this confidence coming up that, yes, I can do this. You know, that this is my child. I love this child and I, I have the skills and I can build them even more to be able to support my kid in in his or her journey so it's really when i can build someone up mm. so that they can take off and 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 be the person the parent they want to be awesome well thank you so much for being on the show and um, i can't wait to get this out to all our listeners <laughs> <laughs> thank you jen i it is it's been such a pleasure such an honor love your podcast and anything you're everything you're doing and Again, one of the amazing things that come out from these conferences is meeting people like you, you know, kindred spirits. 
across Canada. So I look forward to meet to meeting all of the OTs in the next year or so. So so thank you so much. Amazing. Everybody find this. I know CAOT will blast it out there, but sign up quick. The the Vancouver one sold out how soon? In a week? In a week. So get on it. It's totally worth it. Um, and, then and also um, on my website too, um, moirapena.com, I also have the links to the CEOT website that you can also sign up if you want to. But okay. yeah, I look, forward to, I look forward to it. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, if you have any questions, uh, are people allowed to reach out to you? Yeah. That, you know, just find me on my website and email me. And, you know, I, like I said, I, I love to connect with OTs. Um, and, and for us to have a community of practice, mm-hmm. you know, for us to be able to re- rely on each other, I think that's really important. Awesome. Great. Okay, all the best. Music in today's episode is by David Hyde. Thanks for tuning in. I would love to hear from you if you have any ideas for the show or if you'd like to be a guest. Please email me at thegeneralistpodcast at gmail.com or connect with me through the website at thegeneralist.podbean.com. That's the generalist with a J.